This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And now every day we make small and big decisions in our lives. But what if one day we find ourselves in a circumstance where we are no longer able to make those decisions for ourselves, especially on um, more serious things like health or even your assets? You know, how can we ensure that an individual's wishes and individual's autonomy is also respected even when they can't necessarily voice what they want? So here to talk to us about what it means to have the mental capacity to make such decisions and thus the need for a Mental Capacity Act in Malaysia uh, to members of the Medical Legal Society of Malaysia, Anit Korandawa, Vice President um, Legal, and Dr. Mark Tan Kyakmin, Vice President of Medical from the Society. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks, Suen. Thank you, Suen, for having us. Now, before we get into the act, I want to talk about this idea of mental capacity. That's not something that we've had a lot of discussions of here in Malaysia. Um, Mark, maybe you can kickstart this conversation, right? What do we mean by mental capacity and thus the lack of it? Um, thanks, Suen. Yeah, so um, I think, well, at least from a medical perspective, when we talk about mental capacity, it's really about an assessment of whether someone can make decisions for him or herself, um, usually in the medical setting, so with regards to medical decisions. Um, and so if someone does have capacity, then we would listen or we sh- we follow what we call the principle of respect for autonomy, that um, someone who has capacity has the right to make decisions to determine what they want for themselves. Um, and hence, when someone doesn't have or you know lacks mental capacity, then um, they don't have that ability to make those decisions. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree, Mark. Uh, not just making decisions, but making practicable decisions. Hmm. Because just because someone makes an unwise decision doesn't mean the person lacks mental capacity. Yeah. Hmm. So it's 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 quite a fine line. But if you cannot decide on what you want to do on a day-to-day basis, I think that would be a, a criteria. But the assessment is completely in the hands of the medical practitioners. Mm. So I guess in the context of this discussion, right, what sort of decisions are we really concerned about when we talk about someone having the mental capacity to make these decisions? Um, decisions on how they want to use their funds, what they want to do, how, what they want to eat, how they would like to plan their day. Uh, those those sort of decisions, um, whether they have the capacity to even decide on uh, whether they can get into a car and get somewhere, uh, buy their lunch, buy their dinner. It's as simple as that and it can get more complicated. So mm. some people will start showing cognitive impairment on a, a higher level. Like mm-hmm. they, they then will start forgetting their passwords. They can't uh, suddenly access their bank accounts and they can't do banking and you know will create a mess that way you can't you know can't decide on how to pay it it can start like that of elements of being forgetful mm-hmm. and then just decline and that's something I think medical practitioners see quite often hmm. Mark Anit mentioned cognitive impairment. What are the circumstances, situations that lead to someone losing mental capacity, or who are who are the people that we are that we are most concerned about when we talk about someone not having that mental capacity? We can really broadly kind of categorize um, 
this into two big categories. So basically one would be people who have lost their mental capacity and that loss is permanent. Mm. And the other category being those who have temporarily lost their mental capacity. So like with the first category, we're, we're talking about people who have maybe a chronic um, progressive illness such as dementia, um, who will slowly decline and, you know, it their, their loss of mental capacity will not um, come back eventually. Um, so that's just an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the with the second category, we're talking about people who may, you know, um, for the easiest example would be someone who's had a road traffic accident, come in unconscious, um, you know, and so does not have mental capacity. But, you know, after a couple of days in the ICU having been treated, they then, you know, regain consciousness um, and regain their capacity. So it's not exactly a linear thing when we talk about mental capacity. No, it's not at all. Um, and, and you know, when we talk about um, making decisions and assessing capacity, um, we, we, we always say that, um, you know, that decision is both decision-specific as well as time-specific, mm-hmm. right? So um, being time-specific means that, you know, um, a person may lose capacity, and then regain it back. So you actually have to assess for capacity at the time you want to make that decision, whether the patient actually has it or not. And it is also decision specific, i.e. a person may have capacity to make smaller decisions, easier decisions, but at the same time, Mm. not have the capacity to make larger, more heavy decisions. If I can just add... As lawyers, we come across this very often when someone who is in hospital is suddenly suddenly calls a lawyer and says, I want to make a will. Mm. Um, when they are probably on a ventilator, it's it's quite obvious they can't give you any instructions. Um, if they are in a probably a diabetic coma, again, we will say, no, no, we, we, we can't hear from the person. But if they are just in hospital, sometimes as lawyers, we don't know whether they are deciding that with the right capacity Hmm. because they are in hospital they may be in for another ailment Um, we don't know if they are delirious if um, there has been something that's triggered them and why suddenly they want to make a will uh, which may be totally contrary to what they have done in the past so these are situations that also arise which is why a mental capacity act is super important how do you assess then whether someone has that mental capacity to make decisions or not? So if you don't know the person beforehand, you will not be able to know. Mm. If you know the person beforehand, you will know if something is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would know if your friend is different, if that client is different. But this is where the medical profession works very hand in hand with the legal profession because mm-hmm. then the doctor is able to tell whether this person is delirious, this person has come in with uh, some symptoms that may impair his uh, cognitive function and then let let us know to say, I, I think it might be wise to wait a few days or it's, it's important or if it's just a physical injury, I'm sure the medical professionals will say, go ahead, there's nothing wrong with the person mentally. But if there has been a concussion um, for example, after a motor vehicle accident, uh, as, as Mark says, that's one of the signs of temporary mental incapacity. And if they, if after a while they recover and mm-hmm. they are able to even answer questions like, 
uh, where their last meal was and uh, you know things like that sometimes they, they can't even remember where they are la- who where they had their last meal you know where they were a week ago uh, and things like that and, and those are questions that become completely relevant for you to assess it uh, not so much as a lawyer but we've seen doctors do that so we mm. learn mm. yeah um, and and I think you know well at least in Malaysia um, it in medical practice there's no one standard way of assessing mm-hmm. mental capacity mm-hmm. um, I mean people use different tools that that can help um, but um, in other countries for example that have a mental capacity act although it's a, men, a, a medical assessment but there are clear guidelines in the Act or in the subsidiary legislation on how the medical practitioner should actually assess that capacity. And so that's something that we don't have at the moment Mm -hmm. and would be useful to have so that everyone speaks on the same page because otherwise you might find yourself seeing one practitioner who may assess the patient as not having capacity and if you get a second opinion you might get a contrary view um i mean in in those um some some cases are very clear cut mm-hmm. but but in in those um cases which are not so you may get that differences of opinion if you don't have clear um guidance so like in singapore they they actually have a definition and they say that there's how do you define somebody's inability to make decisions for themselves? And that's in Section 5 of the Act. Mm -hmm. And it says things like, unable to understand the information relevant to that decision that the person is going to make. Mm. Um, Unable to retain information that's given to the person or weigh that information as part of the process of making his decision and finally communicate his or her decision to a third party. So these are... Uh, things that are stipulated clearly in the Act. I think yeah. the UK Act has something yeah, it's, similar. It's, it's similar in the UK Act, um, mm-hmm. those four things. Um, and, uh, I mean, we do have some guidelines in, in Malaysia which, you know, obviously um, borrow these four criteria for assessment. However, I mean, it's not mandated that a practitioner must follow it in Malaysia. Hence, the differences of opinion because some people may use these criteria, others may use a different scale of you know assessing mental capacity. Mm. I want to talk a bit more about the the circumstances that would um, that would be relevant when you're talking about mental capacity before we get to the act because mm-hmm. you've both touched on um, dementia, cognitive uh, impairment. You've both touched on um, temporary situations like, for example, after someone has have. Um, was in a, in an accident. Um, I've also read that the Mental Capacity Act could be relevant in circumstances where people have mental health um, conditions. Could you elaborate a bit more on that? Like, what what sort of conditions are we talking about? Um, yeah, Suen. So, um, I think um, first of all, um, we need to acknowledge that in Malaysia we do actually have a Mental Health Act mm-hmm. that would cover people who have mental disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the provisions in there. Um, only cover, at least in Section 77, yeah. uh, three um, situations which are when surgery is needed, when electroconvulsive therapy is needed and when um, there is uh, participation in a clinical trial. Um, so for for the other things, really, um, the Act does not provide for um, the need for consent. Um, now, in the Mental Health Act, there is actually a section as well about how a psychiatrist should assess that mental capacity. 
But bearing in mind that not everyone who comes into hospital with a mental disorder is admitted for the mental disorder. Mm -hmm. So someone could come in with a pneumonia, mm -hmm. but also have, say, underlying um, schizophrenia or depression. Mm -hmm. And so they may be admitted to a medical ward. And, you know, arguably, um, the Mental Health Act would not um, be applicable in those situations. And hence, um, you know, you would need um, sort of, you know, a Mental Capacity Act with clear guidance on how to assess capacity for those sorts of situations. Yeah. Mm. So I, I hope I answered the, the question. So yeah. in addition to these mental health problems, I, I anticipate that the Mental Capacity Act would even cover um, children who grow up to be adults uh, who have, let's say, mm. severe autism, mm. who do not have, ev who have never ever had the capacity to even make decisions for themselves and are, and unable to manage themselves. Um, and as they grow up, if they are nonverbal and they are not able to communicate by an assisted um, a device, mm. which they call uh, AIAC, the the device like an iPad, mm. you know. So sometimes if they are nonverbal, like uh, people who are deaf, they are able to still communicate their decisions. But if they don't even have the capacity to do that, then this would also cover for situations such as those. Mm. So we're talking about an act that applies to a wide range of circumstances. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. mm. All right. We'll go for a quick break and then when we come back, we'll find out more about how a potential act like this would work um, and, and whether this would be accepted by the public as well. On the show with me today are Anit Korandawa, Vice President Legal, and Dr. Mark Tan Kiakmin, Vice President for Medical, both from the Medical Legal Society of Malaysia. We are talking about the need for a Mental Capacity Act in Malaysia. We'll be right back after a quick break. Keep it here on Health & Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su, and we are talking about calls for a Mental Capacity Act to be introduced here in Malaysia and what that would entail, what kind of circumstances that would cover. And joining me to share more about today's topic are the two Vice Presidents of the Medical Legal Society of Malaysia, Anit Korandawa and Dr. Mark Tan Kiakmin. Now, before the break, we were talking about the circumstances that a, a Mental Capacity Act would cover now I want to talk about how it might work, right? Because you've both touched on how we don't have a system in place currently. So, um, and it from a procedural perspective, what would change if we have a Mental Capacity Act? What exactly is its purpose? The purpose is to give every uh, person living in Malaysia autonomy to decide who manages their affairs for them. Mm-hmm when they come to a point where they don't have mental capacity. We are reaching 2030. Uh, we are not that far away. Mm -hmm. And we are already told that Malaysia is going to be an aging population in 2030. So you're going to have a lot of age-related illness. So if today we can already plan and will our property, especially of how our property is to be distributed after our death, why not? give the autonomy to Malaysians and others living in Malaysia to decide that should I lose mental capacity, I would like uh, my son to manage my finances, I would like health decisions to be made by someone else. Or, you know, there could be one person appointed as a deputy, as the Mental Capacity Act provides, 
who would look out for the best interests of that person. And, you know, un- currently, if the person loses mental capacity, we have to make an application under the Mental Health Act mm-hmm. to declare that person mentally unsound. And when that happens, the court decides who sits on that committee that would manage the affairs of this person. Now, the person who has an issue would not in any way have a say on that because at that point in time, the person is unable to make any decisions. Um, we, we just want to give the right back to everybody so that they get to decide. So essentially, these are decisions that an individual would make before they reach that point where they lose mental capacity. Is that right? Yeah, Suen. So, um, yes. Um, and, and in fact, I think um, the whole point here is that you want to encourage people to make decisions in advance or mm. you know, what we call advanced decision making. Um, so basically, someone who has capacity making an advanced decision for a time when they don't have mental capacity to decide so that we are able to know what they want and we're mm. able to respect their wishes, their autonomy to decide on what happens to themselves. Mm. How is that similar or different to something like an advanced care directive? Right. So um, an advanced care directive is really part and parcel of the Mental Capacity Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in say, an, a Mental Capacity Act, say, for example, the one in the UK and Singapore, there are really four, you know, big things there, you know. Um, the first is really um, what we talked about, which is a provision of a clear, um, you know, um, guidelines or, you know, uh, the provision of clear... Um, points on how mental capacity should be assessed, mm-hmm. right? And so that so that then when we can assess that, clearly we know whether someone has capacity or not. Then subsequent to that, the, the other big thing that, that is in a mental capacity act is then having those tools that people can utilise um, to make those decisions in advance. So for example, in, in the UK, they have... Um, a lasting power of attorney mm-hmm. um, and uh, people can make what they call an advanced decision to refuse treatment, right? Um, so there are various tools there and various countries have used different things over time. Um, we have developed more and more advanced stuff. Um, so, for example, in the US, they've got a physician order for life-sustaining treatment. That's what they call it. Um, and yeah, so so that's just one small part of it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's a third thing, which is basically if um, the person loses mental capacity and the person has not made an advanced decision, then obviously someone has to make a decision. And we call that person a surrogate decision maker, right? So, again, provisions are made as to how this surrogate decision maker is identified Mm -hmm. and appointed um, because... It may not be just the next of kin or the family that that the the patient may want. So, you know, there needs to be provisions for that. Um, And lastly, the other thing that is included is how these surrogate decision makers then should make decisions. So... Um, well, in, 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 in ethics, we, we, we say that there are different standards for decision-making. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that everyone knows mostly about is best interests, right? So 
deciding based on the best interest of the patient, but there are other sort of standards that can be used. And so these need to be clearly spelled out so that um, everyone speaks the same language mm. um, when it comes to mental capacity. Mm. I, I think um, what um, we are going to face with an aging population or um, someone who lacks mental capacity is the fact that they become extremely vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Mm. And they become vulnerable to abuse. They become vulnerable to not just physical abuse, financial abuse, uh, and many other types of abuse that um, where where they they are just helpless. Mm-hmm. So had and th- at that point in time, they are not able to communicate as well. So should there be a mental capacity act if they had appointed a trusted person to start making those decisions in their best interest? That would help tremendously, and hopefully cut down the abuse. But we cannot think it's going to be 100%. So like in the UK and Singapore, they've also established a court of protection Mm -hmm. uh, under the Mental Capacity Act where a public guardian chairs that court of protection. All these lasting powers of attorney that Mark spoke of are registered in that court. And if they are activated, the public guardian's office is able to then supervise and go and look as to whether this person is being treated properly. And a layperson can actually come up to the Court of Protection and lodge a complaint, which will then trigger investigative powers that the public guardian has to go and investigate as to whether there's actually an abuse going on. Um, is there, you know, is, is this someone just made a troublemaker? Or if there is abuse, then the court intervenes and, and then stops that person who has been appointed from making those decisions and, and takes over. Um, so these are mechanisms that are safeguards to prevent the system uh, from failing or uh, not providing what it's supposed to. So the whole idea of having a Mental Capacity Act is essentially both protecting the individual and empowering them to make their own decisions. Is that right? Absolutely. Yep. Yes. You know, both of you mentioned best interests, right? And, and I'm coming at, at this from um, a medical perspective as well, because sometimes when we talk about the what healthcare professionals think is in the best interest of the patient may not necessarily be what the patient wants. How is that, how is, how is a circumstance like that managed when there is a mental capacity act in place? Yes. Um, so if we take the UK model, for example, mm-hmm. um, it specifies that, you know, when a patient loses mental capacity mm-hmm. um, and no one has been appointed um, as a surrogate decision maker, then that decision is made by the managing team, the medical team. Um, and of course, um, that has to be, the decision has to be made in the best interest of the patient. And it does specify in, in, in Mental Capacity Act that in order to do this, um, the team need to do a few things. Mm-hmm. So one, they need to take into account what they know of the patient's past and present wishes. Mm-hmm. Um, Two, they are encouraged to speak to the patient's family members, friends, to try to get a sense of, you know, who this patient was, what were these patient's values like, before they make a decision. So then under a Mental Capacity Act, right, how specific can someone be about their wishes, about the decisions that they want to be made in, in that, at that point when they can't make that decision anymore? They can appoint uh, someone to look after financial affairs, mm. health-related matters, 
home affairs, business affairs. So it's very so it covers it, a whole range it of it covers things. a whole range it, it, it's not limited to saying you just need to appoint one person uh, you can draft it and tailor your lasting power of attorney to cover situations that you envisage so if we take a classic example of someone having to undergo a bypass mm-hmm. let's say uh, and they have to be on life support for a while they may not have they will not have capacity while they are on, on life support and during that period, if transactions are to be made, deadlines to be met, they can assign somebody. And for that period where they are incapacitated, someone else can take over, assigned specifically by them. Mm. And when they are well, they come back and take over. And if something is wrong, they, they have an ability to set it right. But with most people, uh, when in cases of Alzheimer's, dementia, they, it's, a, it's a very, very slow decline they're not likely to recover, mm-hmm. then um, there is, that is, these are the mechanisms that the Act will put in place to, to, to then oversee that they're being well looked after. Because mm. the last thing you want is someone lacks mental capacity and the person who has been assigned quickly transfers their property to someone's name, gets it sold, mm-hmm. and, and puts this person in a home instead of caring for that person the way they would have lived. And we've heard of situations like that happen in uh, overseas as well, right? Yes. So we need protections in place. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with regards to the range of decisions, I think it really depends on, you know, what the scope of the act that, that is legislated will allow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, again, if we look at the example of what we have in, in, in um, the UK and Singapore, um, they don't usually just have one mechanism, right? So, so for example, in the UK, um, patients or people who, have, when they have capacity, can make decisions with regards to refusal of treatment. Mm. So they can make a specific, um, what we call an advanced decision to refuse treatment, and they can mm. specify exactly what they would like to refuse, right? But they also have an, uh, they also have an opportunity, or uh, well, they also have an opportunity to um, appoint someone to be um, through a lasting power of attorney to be their surrogate decision maker, right? For the things that they cannot anticipate will happen. So that person would then be empowered to make those sorts of decisions. So it will cover, you know, the the whole spectrum of things. Um, so if, if I'm able to anticipate something, I can tell you exactly what it is. But if I can't anticipate it, I can tell you who I want to make the decision for me. Mm, mm. Yeah. What if the person's, what if that individual changes their mind after setting all this in place? Then, you know, it they how can revoke a lasting yeah. power of attorney at any point. You mm. can change it as many times as, yeah. as you want. There's no problem with that. Mm. It's what just a cost involved. What if, um, and here I am throwing potential um, scenarios, right? But what if at that point they have lost some level of mental capacity? How do you assess then whether that decision, you know, whether they can make that decision to revoke or not? Because, um, um, for example, like you were talking about dementia and it, that's a progressive situation, right? They might lose the capacity to make some decisions, but not all. Yes. And if they decide to change some of it, what protections are there in place or how do you navigate such a situation? 
I think that's where the public guardian would step in mm -hmm. to actually ascertain whether uh, at this point in time where the lasting power of attorney is being changed, the person actually has a capacity to do so. Mm -hmm. And if family members or people around them decide that there is some query and they are not certain, they could always bring this issue up to the court of protection. Yeah, so I mean, coming back to that point, that, you know, surrogate decision makers or proxies do not have a freehold to make any decision yes. about mm. anything. Yes. Um, so there are standards in which, you know, they have to comply in, in their decision-making deliberation. And so then, basically, if, if one suspects or one doesn't agree that the surrogate is doing their job in actually making good decisions, or not really just good decisions, but decisions that the patient would have wanted if they had capacity, then that can be challenged and, and that's where you know the public guardian and the court of protection comes in. Absolutely. Mm. Like, it's like, you know, you cannot have a, a, a deputy or a surrogate decision maker gifting mm -hmm. um, assets without uh, the express um, authorization made prior to this mental incapacity by the person who owns them. They can't decide, oh, just because today I'm I, I've been appointed to decide by Mark, I'll give away Mark's car, mm. you know, his precious Porsche. We, we, can't, we can't do that. that mm -hmm. that's, that's specifically prohibited. Well, I don't drive a Porsche. So. <laughs> you may mm. soon. Mm. But the idea is, I guess, to reassure people that, you know, something like this isn't just put in place for an external person to make any mm -hmm. and all sorts of decisions on your mm -hmm. behalf. It's still based on your own wishes. Yeah, so ideally there are safeguards. Mm. There should be safeguards. And, and that's why we need to have the Act, because right now we don't have those safeguards yes. in place. Mm. So what happens then currently without an Act? You know, who, who makes those decisions when someone loses their mental capacity? So if they have the, the capability and the, the family comes together and goes to court, like I uh, explained earlier, then they get an order mm. under the Mental Health Act mm -hmm. to appoint a committee, which the court decides on the suggestion of those who have taken this issue to court to declare a person mentally unsound and have a committee take over his affairs. But, you know, how many people can actually afford to do that? Mm -hmm. you it's know, a we, costly affair. It's a costly affair. You need to get um, medical experts. Uh, you need to get assessments. You need to have those reports. You need to file it in the high court that has jurisdiction. Uh, you need to get a lawyer involved. Now, why don't we simplify it with this Mental Capacity Act yeah. where you have a lasting power of attorney which you can make? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, what, what Anit's just mentioned, obviously, it's not just about the cost, but it's also about time, right? Because yes. it takes time for mm. these court processes to take place. And if we look at it from a medical perspective, there are certain circumstances in which we can't wait, right? So what happens right now is that um, because we don't have clear guidelines, um, the one that we follow is the Malaysian Medical Council guideline on consent, right? And it states that um, you go to the next of kin. Mm. Now, there's no further definition of who a next of kin yes. is. And so sometimes you, you also get circumstances where, for example, the son and the daughter of the patient don't agree. Mm -hmm. And both are next of kin. Yes. Mm. Uh, and that, that's where you run into problems sometimes. Or maybe the, the patient's spouse, which is the, the wife or the husband, and their children don't agree. Um, 
and and those sorts of you know the the, the permutations are unimaginable, but those sorts of things can happen. Mm. We also live in a borderless world, so when mm-hmm. um, we have next of kin that live abroad, mm-hmm. and people who live here alone with, let's say, a caregiver mm. or a care partner, and we're seeing that become increasingly common. Absolutely. So it it's absolutely time timely that we come up with this now, especially with even people who decide to go to nursing homes, mm. people who go to independent living aged villages which are also becoming pretty common. Mm-hmm. They were unheard of in the past. Mm. Yeah. Um, and in fact, um, just a fun fact, um, you know, we, we, we well, it's not, it's not strictly a, a medical term, but we, we know of what we call a daughter from California syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, yes. that's the daughter who, who's living somewhere far away, who has been quite distant from the patient, who then suddenly shows up at the doorstep demanding for everything to be done mm. for the patient. Sometimes it's out of guilt. Sometimes it's, yeah. So um, so that's, that's something that, that occurs quite commonly that, you know, even gives rise to, you know, a, a, a syndrome named after it. Um, yeah, so that's not uncommon. Mm. All right, we do have to go for another quick break. On the show with me today are Anit Korandawa, Vice President Legal, and Dr. Mark Tan, Vice President Medical of the Medical Legal Society of Malaysia, talking to me about the need for a Mental Capacity Act here in our country. Stay tuned, we'll be right back for more on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And in the studio with me today are Anit Korandawa, Vice President Legal, and Dr. Maktan, Vice President Medical of the Medical Legal Society of Malaysia. They are joining me to share more about what a Mental Capacity Act is um, and why this is something that the Medical Legal Society of Malaysia is pushing for, especially when we look at this trajectory of becoming of Malaysia becoming an aged society. Now, Continuing back what we were talking earlier, um, Anit, earlier you alluded to the systems we need in place when a Mental Capacity Act is introduced. Do we already have those systems now or will there be a lot of work um, that needs to be done in order to support having a Mental Capacity Act in place? We don't have those systems now, but if it is structured, the minute the Act comes into place, there will be those support systems that the go- the government will have to set up. Is it doable? Yeah, absolutely, it's not. It's not difficult. Mm. Uh, it's just whether we want to do it. Political will, then. Absolutely, again. Mm. Uh, I, 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 I think more so than anything, it's about the fact that we're all going to grow old someday. Uh, there, there is going to be a need for this to each and every one of us. And not all of us may have dementia, not all of us will have Alzheimer's, but at least we would have someone to take over those surrogate decision-making, like if I do not wish to be resuscitated. Uh, Mark then would have a really easy time in hospital saying, okay, um, do not resuscitate this patient beyond 10 minutes. We ha- he has the legal authority to do so because the lasting power of attorney says so. Mm. From a healthcare professional's perspective, Mark, would having a mental capacity act also streamline decisions? Um, yeah, so it would. But um, I think beyond just having an act, there mm-hmm. are a couple of other things that need to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, first and foremost, I think it's it's about education mm-hmm. and raising awareness. Because, you know, 
it will take time for an yeah. act of parliament to go through. And, you know, while that is taking place, there's a lot that can be done in terms mm. of educating. Educating not just the doctors, mm. but also patients, right? Because you need to have the patients know about, you know, these sorts of concepts, these sorts of tools that will become available mm. and how they can exercise their um, autonomy, their decision to use them. And you also need to educate the doctors, right, who are on the receiving end because mm-hmm. then they need to know how do I decipher this? If one day the patient comes in or the family comes in with this document, you know, what should I do? Mm. Where do I stand? And there's a lot of educating that needs to take place because, um, number one, it's currently not taught in medical schools. Um, but number two, um, the practicing doctors obviously would not have heard of it while they were in medical school. Mm-hmm. And so this is something, unless perhaps they were trained somewhere abroad where, where such things um, were available. Mm. So that's, you know, about education and raising awareness, which I think needs to take place before we can really fully implement this act um, to what it's meant to cater for. In mm. fact, it's also the man on the street, Mark. Yeah. Mm. You know, their, their willingness to go and and fill up that form and do a lasting power of attorney under the Mental Capacity Act. In Singapore, they've gone digital. Mm. You're able to create one online. So if we have an act, that individual would have to take the initiative to go and get um, to go and have their wishes recorded. Yes, that? absolutely. Mm. Yeah, they, 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 exactly. They have to do that because mm. that that document is what is super mm. important. So to to encourage Malaysians to say the way you plan ahead for your property and for what's going to happen after you die, it's good uh, and responsible to plan uh, for yourself Mm. before you even reach that, should you lose mental capacity. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, yes, the the person would have to be the one who signs off on the form, make those decisions. Um, But, you know, in in Singapore and in America... um, People are, well, not people, but, you know, there are organisations who have taken the initiative to not just request for people to come forward, but to actually bring it to the community. So a lot of these things happen in, you know, a community hall, a community centre where, you know, people or organisations would go and actually provide education, awareness and assistance in helping people to actually develop these sorts of decisions. Mark's right. A CSO um, and university students could do CSR going down to to a community centre and saying, it's going to be an open day today. This is what's available. Have you ever thought of this? Mm. And you, you will have people signing up. Mm. But we struggle to talk about death, let alone the process of dying, right? I mean, essentially, this is linked to that. You're talking, especially when we talk about people having cognitive impairment, how are we going to overcome that sort of taboo to talk about serious illnesses, to talk about death and dying? Yeah, um, no, that that's a very um, good observation, mm. Suen, and, and you're right, you know. Um, so in, I think in our country, not maybe not just in our country, but in this region, mm. um, you know, talking about death is something that's, that's considered taboo. Mm. Um, so there are also um, tools that have been developed to, to help with, with these sorts of things. And I think what we really need is a paradigm shift, you know, yeah. and, and to encourage people to do this. Um, an example is something called the Conversation Project mm-hmm. that has taken place in, in America where 
um, there's a well, the website is available, and peop- um, this this um, organization has developed um, little tools, little suggestions on how to start that conversation mm-hmm. with, you know, your family members, um, and there are different um, templates uh, and suggestions of questions that that should be used or can be used um, in different circumstances. So those would be helpful to help. Be- you know, people, um, you know, start that conversation. Um, and the other suggestion was really that, you know, um, well, if, if you have a family gathering, that's the perfect time to, you know, have those conversations yeah. because then everyone knows exactly what you want and mm. there won't be some sort of disagreement. There won't be misunderstanding, and no misunderstanding, disagreement. Yeah. Mm. You know, like death and dying, mental health was a taboo mm-hmm. in Malaysia and especially in the Asian society. We are slowly moving to that becoming more acceptable. Mm-hmm. Similarly, I think this is going to be a process that we will have to go through. Mm. We will yeah. get there. Uh, I, I sincerely hope we'll get there and I hope we do that now in my lifetime at mm. least. But let's let's start this because we are... If we compare ourselves to other jurisdictions, we're already like 15, 20 years too late. Mm. And and there's no harm in starting both at the same time, right? Talking about death and dying and talking about pushing for mental capacity. Yes. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. But speaking of the societal taboos, we live in a multicultural and more importantly, multi-religious society. How much of an issue will that be for something like a mental capacity act to be put in place? Are there nuances that will need to be considered, especially, I think, um, a need from a legal perspective? Or is something like this broad and general enough that it shouldn't be an issue regardless of someone's um, religious beliefs? I actually think it's broad enough mm. to overcome any religious belief uh, because it is being responsible. Mm. I Every religion in Malaysia has got these underlying values of um, being a good citizen and a good person and planning ahead and not, not, um, not leaving unresolved issues. Mm-hmm. And if we have that mindset that, you know, let, let's do that, um, you know, we, we're not questioning the will of the Almighty. We are saying, let's just plan ahead. That's mm-hmm. all. Yeah, so I think the only thing that's certain when you're born is that we're all going to die. And, um, you know, that doesn't matter whichever religion or culture you come from. Um, But you're right. So I think in Singapore as well, um, when they started, you know, advocating for these sorts of things, they actually did get their religious leaders involved, the organizations to actually reach out to um, you know, the people of their faith to, to say, look, this is something that, you know, um, would be consistent, that it be supported. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it transcends, you know, religion in a way because we're just making preparations, which can include, you know, um, what sorts of religi- religious ceremonies, which sorts of cultural um you know um ceremonies and things like that that you would like mm. and there might be a deputy that's appointed who is of a different faith mm. and i don't think the act is going to prohibit that mm. Mm. because the whole idea is it's your wishes it's being your recorded. wishes mm. all right um to wrap up our conversation then maybe i'll finish with a takeaway message from each of you about why we need this mental capacity act now or why is it important um i'll start with you in it 
Uh, I think legally we have come across too many problems when it comes to mental capacity. It was definitely um, enhanced or become so in your face during the COVID pandemic mm. because some people just had to undergo, um, you know, when they were level four or level five and um, COVID and they, they had to go uh, be intubated and when they couldn't give consent. Mm. I think the the severity or the mag magnitude of the problem just became very, very real. It's only going to get worse. You know, the law needs to not play catch up, but be there now because the situation is something that demands for it. Mm. Yeah, I think with the advances in medicine, people are actually living longer. There's more choices with regards to treatment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having a Mental Capacity Act would be able to help us um, determine what exactly a patient would want or not want um, and also help alleviate, you know, that um, decision-making burden from, uh, you know, uh, someone who's just suddenly asked to make a decision on behalf of the patient. So from a medical perspective, um, I think that's, that's why a Mental Capacity Act is really important. All right. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks. Thank I've been speaking to Anit Korandawa, Vice President of uh, Legal, and Dr. Mark Tan Kyakmin, Vice President Medical, both from the Medical Legal Society of Malaysia. And we've been talking about the need for a Mental Capacity Act. I'm Lim Suen, and this has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.